Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and on today's show, Joy travels to the front line of the research community, speaking with professors at leading New York State universities about their hemp research, their recent discoveries, and how they're providing opportunities for their students to help this amazing plant reach its full potential. Let's join Joy's conversation with Dr. Jennifer Gilbert Jenkins and Dr. Jared Nelson. Thank you, Dr. Jared Nelson, who I know is Jared, and Dr. Jennifer Gilbert Jenkins, who I know is Jennifer, for joining us today on Hemp Barons. Thank you so much for being here, guys. My pleasure. Thank you, Joy. I have had the pleasure of working with you folks for the last couple of years, but you have each had the pleasure of working with hemp here in the Hempire State, the great state of New York, for at least a few years now. As many folks know, New York passed industrial hemp cultivation legislation under an agricultural pilot program in 2015. And you are professors at SUNY, the State University of New York, Jared SUNY Newpalt and Jennifer SUNY Morrisville, and really took the excitement and enthusiasm that the state and the legislature and the governor's office has for hemp to a whole new level at SUNY. Jennifer, you're more in the agronomy, the farming cultivation aspects of that program. And you, Jared, who has some 20 years stretched experience in the fiber reinforced plastics industry, are taking sort of the reins with processing. If we could start with you, Jennifer, what could you describe as SUNY's involvement in the reemergence of this crop here in the great New York state? Well, I think that we see the potential in this crop. And as a agricultural school, we see our job as training the agricultural producers of the future. And so it was important to us to be on the forefront of reintroduction of hemp so that our students can jump back into the field and can be the, the growers of the future. And what classes are offered, courses, or even, I don't know if there are degrees yet around hemp being offered, but can you tell the listeners what SUNY is offering in terms of those classes? Well, there are courses where hemp is a part of the curriculum, and there are courses where hemp is the curriculum. So we now have a cannabis minor, and the cannabis minor covers all aspects of the plant cannabis sativa, so from industrial hemp through adult use. And we're looking at both agricultural field scale production as well as horticultural production. So it's myself and colleagues in the horticulture department that are teaching courses on growing and a little bit on business management. So there's a number of courses there. Specifically, they fall their introduction to horticultural methods of production that are, are happening. And then next fall, I'll be teaching an industrial hemp uh, growing and processing course where we'll be looking at grain and fiber production as well as some alternative ways of growing for CBD and the processing facilities that are developing around the state and visiting those and seeing what, what's happening. But then in just our typical courses. So in my field crop course where I teach about all different field crops, there, there are units that bring in hemp because that's really the way that I see that fit, fitting into the agricultural landscape. Uh, you don't have 
corn farmers and you don't have hemp farmers, you have crop farmers. And hemp is going to be one of our crops in the rotation. And so any production system needs to know how to work with this crop. Absolutely. In fact, we often say, uh-oh, if somebody calls themselves a hemp farmer, you, you might want to look into that farmer because farmers are farmers who are adding hemp into their rotation by and large, as opposed to just getting into to farming for the, the hemp craze, so to speak. We, we like our farmers to know what they're doing. Um, and farmers tend to yeah. just call themselves farmers, as you say. And we're going to, I'm, I'm exactly. going to come right back to you in terms of the re- really important research uh, that you're doing with variety trials, that being sort of step one here in the United States. But let me move on for a moment to Jared. Jared, you, of course, not only are you teaching about fiber and, and alternative fibers and naturally occurring renewable fibers at SUNY, you also have the Bioindustrial Materials Initiative and have been really involved with Sunstrand, the nation's foremost supplier for natural fibers and doing the most work, I think, in the hemp space for delivering on the promise of what hemp can do for us in, in industrial applications, building materials, biocomposites, so on and so forth. Could you tell us first a little bit about the courses that you're involved with at SUNY New Pulse? Mm-hmm. And then tell us about BMI and what you're, what you're hoping for, for the, to the message you want to teach the students there around hemp as a fiber source. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Joy. We do not have structured courses around hemp. I am part of the engineering program here at New Pulse, and it's a pretty new mechanical engineering program at that. And so I do have the luxury, however, of bringing in various aspects, particularly surrounding biocomposites. Uh, sustainable material alternatives is really the the, the key phrasing that, that we tend to use and bring those alternatives into the classroom. From the educational aspect, for me, the education comes from working with students on research projects. And so that kind of starts to cross over to the the BMI that you mentioned. And so the the Bioindustrial Materials Institute, as it exists right now, it's, it's a partnership that consists of myself. Jen is a key part of that. And then also Ron Busenel from Union College and Dan Walchick from RPI. And so we are focused on really trying to to bridge the gap so that we can develop uh, key understandings of bioindustrial material capabilities. And as noted a few minutes ago here in New York, that key focus is on hemp. And so hemp is really at the at the forefront of, of what we're working with. So to kind of loop back a little bit, really the learning capabilities and the opportunities for students to to get hands-on experience working not just with hemp, but primarily with hemp, but also with flax and canaf and and other sustainable alternatives. I have research projects that are ongoing, independent studies where I have groups of students that, that come in and they're interested in working with these materials, perhaps pursuing a, a master's degree and getting getting an idea of what research is like. I think the real win in this is not only do these students get the opportunity to learn about these materials, one of the key outcomes we always try to accomplish is to ensure that these students have the opportunity to go speak to others about the work that they're doing. Ah, excellent. It can, and communicate about it. So many more questions to ask you. And, and moving back to Jennifer for a moment, 
fiber and grain, fiber and grain. So as, as folks often hear me say on the show, you know, thank goodness for hemp extract. Thank goodness for CBD um, d- delivering a much needed cannabinoid to an entire race, the human race which is suffering from endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. And also folks are learning about the many uses uh, of this versatile, valuable plant through CBD. But as folks often hear me say, I've been an oil seed and fiber girl for 30 years and hemp CBD sort of hit us like a ton of bricks six years ago. And again, so grateful for it. And also we have these private jokes at the conferences that both Jennifer and Jared and, and I attend where we sort of you know, gnaw holes on the inside of our cheeks going, when is someone going to talk about fiber and grain? When is someone going to talk about the fact that this is, <laughs> that, uh, that as a grain, as a, as a food, you know, the hemp seed is, is the superfood that, that deserves a super cape. And then in terms of fiber capabilities, and particularly even on the nano scale, which we didn't know about 25 years ago, I mean, this is the world's most valuable biocellulose. So, you are doing most of your research on grain and fiber crops in terms of variety trials. Is that right, Jennifer? Yeah. And in fact, we're not really doing that many variety trials. We're really doing nutrient trials. And so I have a few different varieties each year, but I'm really focusing on the agronomy side of it, of all fiber, grain, and dual purpose fiber and grain varieties. Again, the variety trials are the most important work right now because we need to figure out what varieties will grow here in the United States. You know, the fact that our nation's seed banks did not keep any of the hemp germplasm at all is mind-boggling when we, t- when we understand the strategic value, the survival value of this plant. In fact, the Clinton administration signed an executive order during Bill Clinton's time in office which included hemp as a strategic food source. So the fact that we didn't have any germplasm is crazy. Now, the United States, of course, taken us a little while to wake up. 31 other developed countries have been regulating this crop in the last several decades, whereas we continued to prohibit the cultivation up until 2014 with the 2014 Farm Bill allowing these agricultural pilot programs, which thank goodness SUNY and the state of New York took advantage. And of course now, with the 2018 Farm Bill legal as an agricultural commodity. But those 31 other countries where there are indeed certified pedigreed seeds, which are such an important part of agriculture, and we've got these global seed certifying agencies, such as AOSCA and the OECD has had these wonderful criteria and certifying schemes in place for hemp. But Hemp that grows well and has a beautiful nutritional profile in Canada or Manitoba, let's get specific, northern Manitoba, isn't necessarily going to grow the same in Kentucky, may not even grow the same in the state of New York. And the same thing with fiber varieties. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have learned with the grain and fiber variety trials that you were doing in the initial years of research here? I initially said, well, let's grab some Canadian varieties because they're the closest to us and light cycle should be similar. So let's see how that goes. And we were really disappointed to see that um, they don't grow here in New York as well as there. And each year I've sort of introduced a new European variety into what I'm growing. And I have found that the French varieties in my research have shown that they perform the best. So far in central New York where I've been growing the crop. And so I tend to think that we should be looking more at some of these European varieties than the Canadian varieties. 
I'm by no means the end-all be-all when it comes to looking at all the different varieties that are out there. I know that Cornell has done extensive variety trials where mine have been a little bit more targeted and on larger acreage scales that I think the French varieties are really compatible with our climate. Fascinating. Did not expect to hear that. Very, very interesting. And and also interesting, as you may know, they have a, a legal definition of hemp in France that's not greater than 0.2% THC as opposed to 0.3% THC that we have here. But of course, with the grain and fiber varieties that are stable, THC yeah. is generally not an issue at all. It's, it's those extract varieties that we, that we are trying to stabilize here that have that danger in becoming hot. And you have grown some fiber varieties as well. Is that right? Most of the varieties that I've run have been dual purpose and not fiber only. We've been looking at how to get them to grow like a fiber variety instead of like a grain variety. Which is so important. And and again, these dual crops or even tri-crops, that's really asking a lot of the plant, of course. But as right. we often say, we can use every single part of this plant and there are really no byproducts of the hemp industry or of even the hemp agricultural industry. There are only co-products. There are valuable and rare triterpenes in the root ball that are not found anywhere else in the plant that have tremendous research and history as a medicine and, and with various skin ailments as well. And of course, that valuable seed, the stalk, the outer bast fiber, that bark, the inner woody core, the herd, and then, of course, the grain. So we can use it all. So thank you for doing this important work on how can we go grow crops that allow us to harvest all of the uses of this plant. Because, of course, fiber matures faster than the grain. Is that the, the challenge when we talk about dual crops is trying to get it so that you would be able to harvest around the same time, but they mature at different rates? the grain versus the fiber? If you're growing for a high quality fiber, you're going to harvest a full month to month and a half earlier than if you're growing for grain. And so the dual purpose grain and fiber, you're looking for lower quality uses or for folks who are more interested in the herd fiber and not the outer bath fiber, because that's what's really degrading over time. In New York State, it seems like these dual-purpose crops are better for harvesting for single-purpose, but that they are good for either single-purpose than to harvest them for, for that dual-purpose, mostly because once we get to grain harvest season, this is a really hard time to adequately ret the rest of the fiber. And so there are some confounding problems in there. It's not saying that we can't do it but you're not getting as high quality a product as if you're growing for the fiber on its own. Indeed. So if you're growing for textiles, more than likely that's going to be a single purpose crop and it's going to be a very specific cultivar for that beautiful vast fiber that which will be made into textiles as opposed to exactly. animal bedding or filler for construction materials. Exactly. Even hemp creek yes, because, then, because when you're growing for grain, you want a thicker stalk. And so each stalk is going to have more herd in it than bath fiber. So our dual purpose crops are better suited for things like hemp creek. And that's exactly what I mean by fillers for, for building materials, which of hempcrete, of course, right. being a mold, rot, fire, and pest resistant construction infill. Don't get me started on hempcrete. Oh my God, we'll have to turn it into the hempcrete show, Miss Jennifer. You know that's my favorite product of all the many thousands. And Jared, moving 
Moving over to you, what is the most exciting research that has happened, if, to the extent you're even able to tell us about it, of course, mm-hmm. exciting mm-hmm. research that's happening right now um, at SUNY, and then maybe, if you're allowed to tell us, a research project that you may have going on even outside of SUNY in another endeavor. I work a lot with Jen, and I have a bunch of fiber that she has supplied me from her nutrient trials from last year predominantly. We're working through that right now. We're also working through Larry Smart's group at Cornell, doing a lot of variety trials. And so we have a huge number of samples from them that uh, we're trying to to start working through as well and looking forward to to getting similar samples from, from both groups from this year's crops. So the exciting thing to me is let's use the the dual purpose as an example that we were just talking about. The plant grows and basically the vast fiber, for lack of a better term, and I'm an engineer, not an agronomist, so sorry, Jen, if I butcher this. Basically, the vast (laughs) fiber portion matures at a much earlier time frame than the seed head does. And in fact, as the seed head matures, what I understand from talking to Jen and from the literature is that the lignin concentration in the stalk actually changes thereby changing the the constituency of the fibers. In other words, when we look at fiber, we want a nice, soft, supple fiber eventually. Perhaps, I shouldn't say that's always the case, but that's that's the thought process of what we want. Adding more lignin is going to make that fiber stiffer, more bristly, which may have particularly good uses as well. But thinking toward that textile example that you mentioned, Joy, that's probably not ideal. So I think to me, the real exciting bit in all of this is that my research working as part of the BMI, we're really focused on understanding where are there opportunities for both types of fiber so that we can say, okay, if we want to grow for this highly specific textile, we know that we need to plant this variety and we need to try to control it in these particular ways. And then we're going to process it in this tight date range. We're going to specify how it's going to be redded, whether it's field redded or post-processed out of the field and all the way through the processing until we get to the point where we have the fiber that we want. And the same may be true for fiber that is coming off of a plant that has been harvested for seed. There, I think, are significant opportunities aside from the herd for hempcrete. I think there are opportunities for those vast fibers as well. So that leads to really what the BMI is focused on, which is identifying what are all these variables we're looking at? What's the impact of those variations, such as plant variety, such as where it's grown, such as when it's harvested, such as when it's redded? All of those are huge questions, by the way understanding what impacts each of those have on the end fiber product, thereby allowing us to say fiber grown and processed in this particular way is good for this particular industry. That will, I think, enable more ubiquitous utilization of plant fibers of this type. Those are key missing data right now that I think a lot of people are looking for, particularly, again, those end users that are interested in in using natural fibers such as hemp in end-use products in a technical fashion. By technical fashion, I mean in engineered products, such as something that might be structural or semi-structural, as opposed to I have a hemp toothbrush that I picked up at Sunstrand one day. That's not a real engineered use, in my opinion. It's a great use. It's very interesting. We want to see more technical uses like hempcrete, textiles, non-wovens, things along those lines. Yes, uh, car parts, plain 
parts, this type of thing, interior and exterior, all of those types of things. And, and I think to forward what you're saying, we don't yet have sort of grades as they would and do in other industries, a grading system for various hemp fibers. And that needs to be developed. Isn't that correct? Exactly. So, you know, so we see a significant amount of variation in the, uh, the mechanical properties of fast fibers that we test. It could be the case that there's just more high quality fiber in that than if we wait for the seed head to mature. There still may be some good high quality fiber. We just don't know how to identify that fiber yet either. Even more so, sort it out so that we can say, okay, within a particular stock, we want to take these particular fibers and put them over here for textiles. And we want to take this, these other fibers, we want to put them over here for non-wovens. And the other ones we want to take over here and we're going to put them into animal bedding, things like that. Well, I know that some of the greatest minds all over the world are on this. So I expect that with this synergy and the enthusiasm behind the promise of this plant, that things are going to come together here relatively quickly in the next five years. Also, I think we're discovering, and there's been some preliminary research on what happens to the plant in terms of increasing nutritional profile and value, increasing biomass, increasing surface area and tensile strength of the cellulose if we increase the THC limit, which of course this 0.3 delta 9 THC, the intoxicating cannabinoid or component in the cannabis plant, that's what differentiates hemp from other forms of cannabis in the legal world is it does not contain greater than 0.3% THC. And that was Dr. Ernest Small from the University of Manitoba, who sadly was charged with trying to come up with that number for Health Canada when they began to regulate the crop in 1998 through Canada's Office of Controlled Substances of Health Canada. So and even to this day, the hemp crop is not regulated under sort of a Ministry of Agriculture. It's still regulated under Health Canada's Office of controlled substances. I work a lot with various federal legislators and with state legislators across the United States. And there's lots of talk about trying to see if we can't increase this arbitrary 0.3, which there is basically no chance of intoxication in a finished product to 1% and see what that does for all of this research and for increasing the very properties of hemp that make it such a special and unique and valuable crop. And I want to just close by asking each of you, and Jennifer, I'd love to start with you. How do you feel about the promise of hemp and your excitement for it, for ill or good? And an important lesson that you'd want to make sure that the public knows if they're wanting to get into hemp farming. Oh my God, that's a lot. I have no desire to change the crop that I focus on because we've been studying corn and wheat and soy and oats for so many decades that you know, people are struggling to come up with new questions to ask. There's, you know, at least 15 new questions every day about hemp, about, oh, well, what if we do this? And what if we do that? And so they're doing this. And so it's, it's incredibly exciting. I think for your second question, I would circle back to my original statement, which is there's no such thing as a hemp farmer. Hemp is an amazing crop. It has phenomenal potential to add into our agricultural suite of crops that we grow in New York State. You can't be just a hemp farmer. You have to be prepared to be a farmer, and this is one of the crops that you grow. 
you have to be a jack of all trades to be a farmer and an amazingly optimistic person as this past few harvest seasons with lots and lots of rain will will tell you. The heroes are the farmers, that's for sure, with all of the risks and particularly with no crop insurance available all of these years. Exactly. Of course, starting next year, it's not the whole plant, but it's coming. It's coming a little bit. Thank you for that. And and Jared, same with you, your level of enthusiasm for the promise of this plant, and then a lesson you would want the public to know if they're thinking about getting into processing. Distinction, I get probably 10 emails a day that talk about processing, and I read a sentence or two further, and I realize they don't mean the, the type of processing that I mean when I talk about processing. It's a tough market. The task that I mentioned that the BMI is undertaking is incredibly difficult. There's a lot of information there. The processing business, as anyone who is in it can tell you, is not easy. So if we take a quick second and run through it, talking significant equipment for decortication. So this is assuming that you're buying redded fiber, right? And actually, even before decortication, you probably need something along the lines of a bale opener to get that fiber. So then you have decortication and separation and then further separation and refinement. There are significant capital investments required even for some of the most basic pieces of equipment to do these things that are available. The flip side of that is, and this is the the tact I've chosen to take and helps me remain optimistic and excited about this, is I think that most of the people that I know, myself included, look at this as an opportunity. I think Jen encapsulated that well in her answer a minute ago. And I think the same thing is true on my side. There are all these questions that need answering, but we have the opportunity to go in and address and figure out unique answers. And the real win in this is sustainability. Farmers are able to have a profitable crop. We have a positive social impacts. And the biggest one that most people focus on was sustainability, the the green alternate alternative that these these fiber options can bring. That's really exciting to me. So we can make better, stronger, longer lasting, more superiorly performing, if that's even a word, products from a renewable, sustainable crop so exciting. And it's it's just an honor and a pleasure to be experiencing this revolution with you right here in the great state of New York. Jared and Jennifer from SUNY New Paltz and SUNY Morrisville, thank you so much for being with us today and for everything you do for this crop. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Joy. Appreciate being here. Always appreciate talking next to Jen. She makes me sound smart. <laughs> ah, you're both wonderful. You're both wonderful. Can't wait to have you on again. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.